This podcast is a production of WBEZ Chicago and is made possible with the support of listeners like you. Become a new member of WBEZ or renew your membership online at WBEZ.org. Thanks. You're listening to the Curious City podcast from WBEZ Chicago. You ask the questions, we answer them together. I just love this street because it's very international street. Different people from different country, different culture. Mm-hmm. And it's very interesting to see people in different clothes, different faces, different stores. podcast listeners, Jennifer Brandell here, your host. What you just heard are the sounds of Devon Avenue in West Rogers Park on Chicago's far north side. And as you can tell, Devon is diverse. When Lowell Weiss moved to Rogers Park, people kept telling him that it's the most diverse neighborhood in the country. Lowell wanted to know if that's true. And he also wanted to know what attracts different immigrant groups in the north side neighborhoods like Rogers Park, and whether or not the city government has a hand in resettling refugees there. Does the city actively participate in resettling international refugees in certain neighborhoods such as Rogers Park? WBEZ's Northside Bureau reporter Odette Youssef took on Lowell's questions. They met up at Devon and Western to see what resettling a new refugee family is like firsthand. Hi, are you Lowell? Yeah. Odette, nice Nice to to meet meet you. you. I meet Lowell on Devon Avenue. It's near the intersection with Western Avenue, and we're outside an old apartment building. All right, so it's Unit 2A, so let's go in. All right. We're at this building because a refugee family's moving in tomorrow. Today, the people resettling them are inside, getting the apartment ready. Ooh, it's kind of warm in here. We go up to a one-bedroom apartment where the temperature's cranked up to at least 80 degrees. Waiting for us there? is Ryan Spangler. Just today, uh, we brought a full bed, two twin beds, and a table, and five chairs. And we're working on bringing in a futon. Spangler is the housing coordinator for the Heartland Alliance for Human Needs. That's one of five local nonprofits that resettles refugees in the Chicago area. Spangler found out about a week earlier that the family would be coming. And here's what he knows. It's a family of four, two parents and their young sons, they're Rohingya. That's a persecuted Muslim minority from Myanmar, formerly known as Burma. They fled Myanmar and were living in Malaysia. And Spangler says Devon Avenue would be a welcoming neighborhood for them. Because we know there's um, a lot of other Rohingya and people that can support them in this area. Ideally, this family should be in a two-bedroom. Um, but, you know, given the fact of their income and the fact that it's probably going to be a one-income earner, um, we're like, okay, let's let's try and get a one-bedroom that's a decent size that can, you know, fit them relatively comfortably. Westridge isn't Spangler's only go-to neighborhood. 
He also looks in Rogers Park, Uptown, Edgewater, and Albany Park, all north side. That's because housing is relatively cheap there, and those neighborhoods have transit lines that run to resettlement agencies like Heartland. Another thing, Spangler says some landlords there are sympathetic to refugees' unusual circumstances. For one thing, they come with no job. (laughs) They have no income, uh, and they have no credit in the United States, so they've never had any sort of rental history or, or anything like that. And also, you know, resettlement agencies will only, you know, guarantee rent for three months. And then after that, they're going to be on their own. I return to the apartment the next day. A handful of volunteers are here about an hour before the family is due to arrive. I'm Sam Cummings, and I'm a volunteer through Exodus, through Dominican University, and I've been setting up the refugee's house. Exodus World Service is a faith-based organization. Its volunteers help stock refugees' apartments so they feel more like home. So we bring them um, all sorts of kitchen utensils, washcloths, dish detergent. All these items are donated. Cummings and her fellow volunteers try to be the first welcoming faces that refugees see when they enter their new homes. Two young boys come to the door and then their mother. They hang back in the entrance, too shy to enter their own home. The physical space between them and their American greeters almost feels symbolic. Welcome to America, welcome to Chicago. The volunteers take their coats and roll in their suitcases, and they smile. Perhaps that can narrow the language and cultural divide. Their father comes in at last with a translator. Mohammed Noor says he doesn't know anything about Chicago, but he knows why he came. Malaysia, my children, they cannot go to school, they cannot get education. So I hope that in the future, my children can go to school. They can learn very well and they can, their life will be become bright in the future. Odette Youssef, WBEZ. Jennifer here, I'm back. Joining me in studio for more on this story is Odette Youssef and our editor, Sean Ali. Hey guys. Hey. Hey there, Jennifer. So I have some more questions for y'all. And if you're a listener to Curiosity, you know that when possible, we involve the question asker in some part of the reporting. What was it like to have Lowell along with you, Odette, as you were reporting this story? Do you think him being there influenced the outcome or changed anything for you? I don't think so. I think it actually maybe drove home even more for him the sort of limited resources that some of the resettlement agencies have. So when we met at that apartment, um, we met two people, and they were hauling all this furniture up two flights of stairs by themselves from a minivan. And they only have one minivan for their organization, the Heartland Alliance. And so they got a call while Lowell and I were there from somebody else in the organization who said, hey, we have this other thing going on. We need the minivan. And they weren't done setting up yet. So that's why Lowell started, you know, ripping through the plastic that was wrapping the mattresses and helping them assemble the bed frames and things like that. So um, if anything, it was actually kind of fun and, you know, neat for him to sort of experience what they have to go through to set up for a new refugee family coming to town. That's so cool. And it makes me wonder, too, did that kind of beg any moments of panic in you, editorial questions like, what if he gets hurt or what happens? Sean, I know you probably had thoughts on that. 
Yeah, actually, the image of Lowell ripping through the plastic on the beds and moving the beds around is actually going through my head right now. <laughs> um, as the uh, as the editor of the project, I thought I was looking at Odette um, while Lowell was doing this, and I think I was like, "Huh, what do we do?" <laughs> uh, usually, you know, Odette's uh, holding the microphone, asking the questions, and I was along the r- for the ride that day, taking pictures of everything. And, uh, you know, usually we kind of have the anthropological sort of take on it. It's like, hey, these are the participants and we're here to get the story and we're not here to participate in some way. And, you know, the interesting part about the project is that sometimes we see those walls break down a little bit, especially when we have um, some of our sources um, and participants through the project come with us. And Lowell was a really good example of that. There was no reason for him to um, not help out. I don't know about you, Odette. I felt actually a little guilty. Still didn't help out, but I still I felt yeah, maybe I a little guilty. But, uh, you know, the roles are slightly different. And, um, you know, that was that's the strong point of the project, I think. And I talked to Lowell about that, actually, when I ran into him at the grocery store later oh, no um, in Rogers Park. We live in the same neighborhood. And I said, hey, Lowell, you know, I said that was pretty wild. He goes, yeah, they just seemed like they needed some help. And I was like, yeah, they did. <laughs> they did. And there I was with my camera. <laughs> yeah. Odette, you did some extra reporting with data that you found. Where did you get that data on refugees and what story did you find within it? Yeah, so we got some data from the Office of Refugee Resettlement, which is a federal agency within the State Department. And we were looking at the history of refugee resettlement in in Illinois, really. They don't necessarily track it by the city. And we had it broken down by the country from which refugees were coming. And so we put together this fantastic interactive sort of bar chart. Sean did most of the heavy lifting, really, on that, that let you visualize really how many refugees were coming in any one given year from, you know, which countries. And so as you tracked it from uh, 1980 until 2012, I believe, you saw some really big changes over that period of time. So initially, um, the first refugees that really came through an organized program in the United States were the Vietnamese refugees after the Vietnam War. Mm specifically after the fall of Saigon. So really 1975 was when they formally started coming here. We didn't have really detailed data until about 1980. Um, But even um, 1980, 1981, 1982, we were really only seeing refugees coming from three or four countries. Um, Those in sort of Indochina, we're talking about Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia. And then we also had some from the USSR and some from Cuba. So you might detect a pattern there. And that was sort of what really was unexpected for me was that in the early years of our refugee resettlement program, we were resettling people who were coming from countries that we did not agree with their political, you know, their political system, Mm -hmm. mostly from the communist world. Uh, And then right around 2002 or so, there was this big shift. And suddenly we were getting a lot fewer refugees on average from any one country, but there were so many more countries that we were getting refugees from. And it shifted really from a program that was aimed at helping people out of certain political environments and more towards a real humanitarian program to help people who were being persecuted, um, living actually in another country at refugee camps and needed to get out. Excellent, and in, in terms of how that works for you as a reporter, 
I imagine that looking at a visualization is a lot more pleasing than looking at a spreadsheet with a million numbers. Did you find that that having that visualization that Sean did, and Sean, feel free to jump in here, kind of helped you figure out what the story was more than just looking at the spreadsheet? I would say, yeah. And, you know, Odette and I talked about this quite a bit before her reporting was finished. And what I noticed is that if you have a larger spread of countries in the later years for the refugees coming in, you're basically not having a critical mass of any one population that can really make a place in the Chicago region feel different. Mm -hmm. So, for example, um, Skokie and Morton Grove, some of these northwestern suburbs, their character has been informed by the people that came from the, the former USSR while the place was actually a communist country. So there was, a, there was enough of those people all at once to kind of give it a flavor. And you can see refugees from different parts of the world, say in Rogers Park, West Rogers Park, West Ridge, that sort of thing. Um, but from now on, you may not see a critical mass of them other than just notice them individually or meet them or get to know them individually. It's just not the same experience now. And that's kind of what rang a bell for us of like the significance of this for our region. For example, the Vietnamese population has their economic center, their business center up um, in Uptown, really, in the Argyle area. There was such an influx of Vietnamese that they could kind of make that their place. So I think what Sean's saying is that, you know, no other group is coming in with such a volume, such a large number of people that they could make a little town that has the character and culture of their home country. So if you want to see the visualization we were talking about that Odette and Sean put together, just go to WBEZ.org and you can search for a story called By the Numbers, Refugees in Illinois. Well, if you guys have another couple minutes, I have a few more questions for you. Sure. So does the system of support in place for refugees coming to Chicago seem to be working well from your vantage point or is it is it rather fragile? It seems like if this is volunteer powered and church powered, that, that seems pretty tenuous. It's an amazing system, Um, and I think that I didn't realize how remarkable it was until I went back through the history of it, because the numbers of refugees that we were taking, for example, in the 70s and the early 80s is way above what we are taking now. Mm -hmm. Um, We're talking about a factor of three or four. Wow. And for a program that was so new. You know, those were the first refugees that were coming through a really formalized government system of refugee resettlement. Somehow they were able to absorb and work with an enormous population at that time. And the way they did it was through this public-private partnership that's that's preserved until this day. They, this is how they still do it. So I don't think, actually, that it's tenuous. Um, you know, they've been working with new constraints, um, the amount of funding that these organizations have on a per-refugee basis to help pay for things like rent and food and basic necessities has been going down. And that's been very difficult. And the onus has been on these organizations to try to supplement that with their own independent fundraising. And that's difficult, too. Um, Another pressure that they've been finding is that historically, The north side neighborhoods of Uptown, Albany Park, Rogers Park have been cheaper Mm -hmm. to put refugees in, but that's not so much the case anymore as these neighborhoods gentrify. And so that's another struggle that they're having is where are they going to be able, how far out can they locate, you know, refugees so that they still have access to the services they need to get to 
Um, and frankly, they still need to be somewhat visible in the city or else the case that these organizations have to make to raise more money is weakened. And so there's a number of competing pressures, I would say, on these organizations, but they've been remarkably resilient. Well, that kind of leads back to one of Lowell's original questions, which was, you know, there's this rumor that Rogers Park is the most diverse neighborhood, not only in Chicago, but in the country. And it seems like if, you know, people are getting priced out of Rogers Park or things are changing, is, is that true? What did you find in your research? So first of all, the question of what makes a place the most diverse or what makes one place more diverse than another is a little bit slippery. Mm -hmm. I wasn't really able to find a breakdown of diversity by Chicago community area or Chicago neighborhood. What we do have are numbers from the census. And you could look at maps that break down into nothing finer, unfortunately, than the four major racial groups. So, you know, Caucasian, African-American, Asian, and Hispanic. So if you accept that as a poor substitute for a really detailed study on, on diversity, what I found was that the census tracts that had the most even distribution among the four races actually were not in Rogers Park. They were just over Ridge Avenue to the west in West Ridge. Um, and that, in fact, was the neighborhood where this refugee family that we ended up meeting was moving into. And that's been one of the neighborhoods that these organizations have been turning to for cheaper rental properties. Um, and Uptown actually is probably the place where you had the second most diverse census tracts. But again, you know, it's difficult to know what's the correct proxy to use as a measure of diversity. You could you could look at the large racial groups or you could do another measure uh, looking at how many languages are represented somewhere. And it is true that some of the schools in the Rogers Park neighborhood, you know, they have 50 or 60 languages that their children can speak. And so... It's a difficult question to answer. Um, I don't know if saying that Westridge or Uptown is more diverse, you know, than Rogers Park would be the final word on it. But it is certainly still a very diverse neighborhood. Have you told the alderman about this yet? <laughs> <laughs> I won't break the bad news to him. <laughs> <laughs> right. And you know, Jennifer, when we asked about this question on Twitter, I think the tweet that I sent out about it to kind of promote some of uh, Odette's findings was, Rogers Park is Chicago's most diverse neighborhood equals urban myth question mark. And as soon as we put that out, you know, even people who didn't necessarily live in the city had something to say about that. Um, you know, you obviously haven't been here, Sean, or you haven't been here, <laughs> Curious City, um, to see to see what's going on here. It gets people pretty pretty riled up. I even say. though Sean lives in Rogers, even Park. though I live yeah. in Rogers yeah. Park and I shop in Westridge, <laughs> so <laughs> and I've run into both Lowell and the Rohingya family that we introduced just on the street, so. Yeah, <laughs> fighting words, clearly. I know, and right? People are proud of their <laughs> diversity in their neighborhood. <laughs> yeah. Excellent, well thank you so much both for coming in and giving some more insight and behind the scenes into how these stories came together. Really, it's a couple different stories that you did. Sure thing, anytime. Right on. This has been episode 16 of the Curious City podcast. Special thanks to the Southern Asia Department at the University of Chicago for the soundscape of Devon Avenue. 
Curious City is produced by WBEZ, Chicago Public Media, Ziga, and AIR, the Association of Independence and Radio. Our senior producer is Jennifer Brandell. I edit the series, that's me, Sean Ali, and Logan Jaffe is our intern extraordinaire. The Curious City podcast is produced with production help from Sarah Liu and editing oversight by Robin Amer. You can subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or listen to our back catalog in SoundCloud. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at WBEZ Curious City. Lead financial support for Curious City comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Chicago Public Media creates award-winning content about the issues that affect our community, our nation, and our world. More information available at chicagopublicmedia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.